Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today is episode 77, and I've got a special guest for you today. But before we get to that, make sure you like, subscribe, do whatever you need to do to follow the channel, and let's get into it. My guest today is an award-winning lawyer and mediator who has mediated thousands of conflicts. His calling is to serve humanity by focusing on helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts. He is an award-winning author of three books, a teacher, speaker, and a trainer. His fourth book, Deescalate, was published by Beyond Words Publishing in September of 2017, and Deescalate is now in four languages and in its second printing. He's the co-founder of Prison of Peace and the creator of the Null uh, Affect Labeling System. In 2012, he was honored by California Lawyer Magazine as California Attorney of the Year, and so I am excited to have with me today, Doug Knoll. Did I say that right, Doug? You got it, Dylan. Thank you. Great to be here. Absolutely. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Just got off a two-day little holiday with my wife's 51st birthday. We went across the mountains through Yosemite. I live very close to Yosemite National Park. We drove all the way through the park over to the east side of the Sierra Nevada and spent two days over there and dropped dead gorgeous fall weather. The leaves are starting to change over on that side of the mountains. 7,000, 7,500 feet. It was beautiful. It's awesome. Well, Doug, why don't you, uh, you know, tell me more about how you got into the business, the the books, the you know, the the speaking, the you know, everything, mm-hmm. all of it. You tell me. Kind of start with your story. Uh, you know, give me whatever you need to uh, get us to where you are now. Sure. So I was born in 1950. I'll be 72 years old in a couple of weeks. I was born, however, with a lot of disabilities. I was born partially blind, partially deaf, two club feet, bad teeth, left-handed. <laughs> I was a mess. Anything else? I wasn't so severe. Pardon me? <laughs> Anything yeah. else or is that it? I was not, those are the big things. I couldn't walk <laughs> until I was three years old. Uh, and, and in those, I, so I wasn't so severely disabled that you know, they had to put me away somewhere. <laughs> no. Because I also, also was gifted with a, with a pretty strong intellect. But the problem I had was that nobody knew what to do with a kid like me. And so consequently, I didn't get a, I didn't get any serious, although I grew up in affluence with loving parents, nobody knew how to give me, give, give me emotional support. And they basically told me suck it up, buttercup, power through it. And so I powered through a lot of physical pain. And, and along with that, a tremendous amount of emotional pain. And really the way that I, the only way I could deal with it is just become arrogant. I was really super smart. Um, and I could, the only way I could learn how, the only way I felt like I could be protective is to just be isolated and be a rock and push everybody away and be smarter than everybody else. And, you know, (laughs) which was just totally the wrong strategy, but nobody coached me and told me the right thing to do. And and I ended up in fourth, by fourth grade, I was failing in school. Nobody could figure out why until a nurse finally got the right idea to test my eyes. In those days, they didn't test eyes or hearing like they do today. Right. All of a sudden, they realized I've got 2,400 vision. So I get these big black Coke lens glasses, right? <laughs> I'm already a buzzkill with everybody. Now I'm really a buzzkill because I'm a total nerd. Yep. And, and, uh, and I went, I advanced three grade levels in one year. And all of a sudden, they realized, you know, not only is this kid disabled, but he's really smart. We have no clue what to do with him. So somehow I managed to survive high school and everything with all the usual turmoil and problems, mine compounded by all my stuff. And I was accepted and attended Dartmouth College. 
And, uh, and after college, I came back to California. And in those days, if you didn't go to med school, you went to law school. So I went to law school mm-hmm. and uh, did well in law school and decided that I did not want to go to LA or the Bay Area to practice, to have a career. And so I moved to Central California and, and clerked for a judge for a year and then went into private practice and became a trial lawyer. And I tried, I was a civil trial lawyer trying very large commercial business cases for 22 years. Along the way, I picked up the martial arts, eventually earned my second degree black belt. And my, when I, a couple of days after my teacher awarded me my second degree, he fired me. <laughs> you're an asshole. You're, you know, arrogant. You're, what? I still hadn't gotten over any of my stuff, right? It was just a compounding. Now I'm a second degree black belt and a trial lawyer and arrogant and super smart. You know, I mean, it was a yeah. mess. Can I, can I ask what, uh, what martial art? Yeah. Um, Northern Chinese animal style called Shoshu. Okay. And, uh, extremely vicious street fighting. We, our motto was we break, we break bones, not boards. And uh, I mean, I remember my, my, for my first degree, it was a week long test and I got knocked out three times and I not knocked out two other guys a couple of times. I mean, it was, it's vicious and that's with full pads. Mm-hmm. Um, it was tough. So anyways, he, my teacher had the insight to send me to go learn Tai Chi. And Tai Chi is the oldest of all martial arts. It's also the mo- it's also an extremely vicious, violent martial art when you study it as a martial art, which I did. But it has two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second paradox is uh, you uh, let's see, soft to be strong. The more the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. So soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Did not compute did not compute, but that's how Tai Chi works. Because yeah. the only way you can move Chi is by being soft and vulnerable. The moment you freeze up, you tighten up, you try to be tough and strong, the flow stops and now you're defenseless. So eventually those, those paradoxes became part of me. And one day, a couple of, some years later, I was in a courtroom trying a case and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? So after that, trial, I went on a long vacation, thought about it and came back saying, I'm not going to try cases anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is not my long term career path. And it turns out that I learned or heard about a new master's degree program in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at one of our local Mennonite University, Fresno Pacific University. So in the mid 90s, at 47 years old, I was a full time master's degree student, a three quarters time law professor and a full time trial lawyer. And that was the end of my first marriage. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't um, surprise me at all. <laughs> so after many, many discussions with my law partners, uh, they did not want me to become a peacemaker. They hated the idea. I was the second largest earner in the firm. Uh, they did not like to see the golden goose walk away from all this. And basically, they gave me an ultimatum. I called their bluff and walked out with one week's notice, leaving 10 million bucks on the table. And, and I started my own mediation and peacemaking practice in November 1st, 2000. And started mediating cases. And I really worked on cases that were, I really loved working on non-litigated cases, cases that where relationships were at stake. There was a lot of money at stake, but relationships like family business conflicts. I worked in a lot of family or ag, agricultural family business conflicts. I worked in a lot of uh, firms where partnerships were, were fighting with each other um, and very difficult work. And the one thing that I did not have was a way of calming down angry people. And I'd taken every listening course, anger management course I could find, and none of it worked. It was mostly, most of it was all bullshit. And 
but I, during my master's degree studies, I'd gotten into neuroscience. And so I was studying neuroscience and the emotion, the neuroscience of emotions and really picked up a lot of knowledge about that. And one day in 2005, in a very difficult mediation, the thought came to me, listen to the emotions instead of to the words. And it worked like magic. I had this, these people who would be, wanted to kill each other <laughs> at the beginning of the mediation. At the end, they were a divorce couple. And at the end, they were walking out, holding hands and had lunch with each other and settled, settled their case in like five minutes after they de-escalated. So that got me on the path. Two years later, Matthew Lieberman, a neuroscientist at UCLA, came out with a brain scanning study that showed why this technique, this affect labeling worked. And so I began to teach it and write about it. And uh, I got a, had a lot of skepticism because it's so counterintuitive and counter-normative to, to, to what we know. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, I had the opportunity with my colleague, Laurel Copper, to start introducing this to people serving life sentences in maximum security prisons. And this is the first skill we taught them. And the, our first cohort were 15 women serving either life or long-term sentences in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world. And 18 months after we started that project, we got an unsolicited letter from the warden saying the prison was no longer that way. It had really quieted down as a direct result of what we were training our incarcerated students to do. Mm -hmm. Today, Prison of Peace is international. We're in, we're in Greece, Denmark. We're going to be in Denmark, uh, Nairobi, Italy. We're in, all over California, uh, Connecticut, Colorado. So it's just, it's just expanding rapidly. Sure. And it was, um, it was a result of inmate requests. They all knew I, was an, I had published three books. And it was there that my students said, would you please write a book about what you're teaching us? that we can share with our families. And so that led to the fourth book, Deescalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less, which was picked up by Beyond Words, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster and has done very, very well, well-received. So in a nutshell, today, I still work in prison of peace. Uh, it's more of a hobby, I wouldn't say it's a hobby, but it's not my full-time work. I'm, I'm right now, I'm really concentrating on training people in these skills, I've got a real focus on schools. There's so much violence and fighting in schools these days and, and angry parents. So I'm really putting a lot of focus on helping schools learn these skills. Um, you know, law enforcement's really interested in my work and then teaching people, leaders, corporate leaders, how to use these skills to build powerful teams. And so my work is kind of all over the place and that's what I do. Well, I would love to talk a little bit more about your work if you don't mind. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the affect labeling system I'm, I'm curious about, can you kind of explain just, just brief, briefly, what, what does it mean? Basically the only way that I have found to calm an angry person rapidly is to reflect back to them, their emotional experience in the moment. And that process is technically called affect labeling. Essentially it's emotional reflection. Sure. And here's where it's very different from what everybody's learned. Uh, the old Thomas Gordon technique of active listening. He was the one that coined the term active listening in 1956 in a chapter that he contributed to Carl Rogers' last book, Carl Rogers being the great 20th century humanist psychologist. And Gordon had a lot right, but he had a lot wrong too. And unfortunately, the human potential movement picked up on his stuff in the late, six, uh, late 50s and early 60s and completely misconstrued what he was saying. And so it got perverted into this, what I think you're, what I think you're feeling is X, where it's an I statement. It's a passive voice I statement followed by some sort of statement, which 
we all know, angers people when they hear this very patronizing, manipulative, what I think you are, what I heard you say, or what I think your feeling is. Um, so using I statements to reflect back doesn't work. Um, uh, it was picked up in nonviolent communication. This, the, guy, the guy who started nonviolent communication was a PhD student at, at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, out of the yeah. same state you're in. And he was about 15 years behind Thomas Gordon in the same department where Carl Rogers was. He basically took everything that Gordon did and rebranded it as nonviolent communication. And today, if you look at the nonviolent communication formulas and you compare it to Gordon's formulas, it's almost exactly the same. They're almost identical. They're just the NBC stuff is just, you know, it just it was rebranded and and marketed in a, in a very different way. But it's just as ineffective <coughs> for de-escalating angry people. So that that stuff didn't work. And then so I developed, I, I discovered how to listen to emotions, and then all of a sudden this neuroscience study comes out two years later out of Lieberman's lab at UCLA that shows exactly why it works the way it does in the human brain. As it turns out, you can't be immune to this. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. If you have a relatively well-functioning human brain, I mean, relatively well, I, I, this works with Alzheimer's people. It works with autistic children, people on the autistic spectrum, Asperger's. Um, it works with every personality disorder except the overt maladaptive narcissist. I don't think it works so well with those people, but I don't, I don't think much works well with those exactly people. Exactly correct. But, and you, know, you got, I'm not an expert or anything. Well, your observation <laughs> is correct. Um, but because our brains are built in a very particular way, when we reflect back somebody's emotional experience with a use statement, it has the effect of automatically inhibiting the emotional centers of the brain, primarily the amygdala. And at the same time, activating the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex. And that's what Lieberman's brain scanning study showed. And, so, and, oh, go ahead. So for, for example, you're, you're talking about replacing I with you Correct. in the conversation. So it's, it's more like I'm, you do, I would say, like you seem angry or you feel I would, angry. What, well, how would you say? Direct. Hey, Dylan, man, you are really pissed off. You're really angry. You feel completely insulted and disrespected. You don't feel listened to. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel supported. Yeah. And you read exactly. Yeah. You're, you're anxious <laughs> and worried and concerned. Sure. And, the, and you're a little embarrassed about all of this. And you're sad. You're losing all your connections. And you don't know why. This is what really concerns you and confuses you. And you feel completely abandoned mm -hmm. and betrayed and unloved. Makes sense. So I, I think... I, 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 I love that. Like I, I, I use that religiously in my own, in my own practice. The, I think the trouble that, that I see um, is not that it's, it's not necessarily that it's ineffective in use. It's that not everybody recognizes emotions very well. Exactly. In, in, correct. In the ability to reflect them. So do you have, yes. How do you, how do you deal with that? So let's talk about the problem. The problem is that we live in a society that, that is built on the myth of rationality. For 4,000 years, we've been taught that what makes human beings different from other animal species is reasoning and rationality. Aristotle just came right out and said it. And neuroscience teaches today the exact opposite. We are not rational beings. We are emotional beings with small moments of rationality. But because we have been fed this myth, this lie for so long, it is, it is, has 
permeated every aspect of our culture. So emotions are weak. They make you vulnerable. They make you exploitable. You can't be a manly man. Put on your, pull up your big girl panties. Um, don't be irrational. So we have all these pejoratives around emotional experience. And as a result, by the time emotional, most, most people stop emotional, emotional maturation at six years old. Mm -hmm. And they grow up to be adults, physical adults, and they learn all these ways of creating this thing around them that makes them look competent. But really inside, they have the emotional maturity of a six-year-old because their parents were emotionally immature and invalidated them and abused them, even in the most loving families. And it stopped the growth process and the development of the emotional centers of the brain. As a result of that, people did not learn emotional competency. And, and now we get into a different problem. And that is that our brains can only deal with structured data. If it's unstructured data, our brains will ignore it because dealing with unstructured data takes too much work. It's too hard. So ex explain the difference between structured and unstructured for me. Sure. Uh, unstructured data is just information that we might have floating around that we don't have in a database, let's just call it a database, that, that makes sense and is organized and accessible that we can then apply to a problem. Let me just give you an example. Supposing, supposing I say to you, okay, Dylan, I want you to give me a quick lecture on invertebrate paleontology. And you don't know anything about invertebrate paleontology, right? Not, not, not much. To mention the fact that the idea, the whole idea of invertebrate paleontology is nonsensical because invertos don't have bones, so how can they have fossils, right? <laughs> um, so you would, but if you knew how to structure data, you would say something like, "All right, so I've got to answer Doug's question, but the first thing I'm going to just say what, and then I'm going to ask answer the question what if, and then I'm going to answer the question what is." So I'm just going to ask myself inside, what is invertebrate paleontology? And I, and I might say something, well, you know, I'm really not sure about invertebrate paleontology, but the idea of, I just know from my general knowledge that invertebrates don't have bones and therefore they can't leave fossils. So the idea of invertebrate paleontology must be an extremely difficult subject because we have no fossil records upon which to base any conclusions. But what if we could develop some kind of science that allowed us to look at the residue of invertebrates living a millions of years ago that would give us an insight into the invertebrate life. Well, what's next then is for people who study this sort of thing to develop the science further, to think about what are all the different aspects that we can find that would leave traces from which we could draw conclusions about how invertebrates lived three years ago, th millions of years ago. Sure, sure. So I just gave you a 90-second structured description of invertebrate paleontology, not knowing anything about it. Right. Because I was able to structure the data by asking the questions, what, what if, what next? Emotions are the same way. Emotions are data, just like numbers on a spreadsheet. But because we don't have good emotional databases, because we're not brought up to be emotionally competent, emotions slip past us very quickly. And so what we have to learn how to do is structure this emotional data in a way that makes it accessible. And the way we do that is very simple. We simply understand that emotions come in six layers. There are the anger emotions, the insult emotions, the fear emotions, the shame, embarrassment, guilt, and embarrassment emotions, the sadness emotions, 
and the abandonment emotions. And if you just remember those layers, all you have to do is when somebody is emotional with you, you just, they present at some layer, you start in that layer, and then you move up or down depending upon what's appropriate. And you, now you've got these six layers, you know, you just start poking at these different layers and see what kind of a reaction you get. And now all of a sudden you structure the data. You don't have to have a huge emotional vocabulary to do this in less than 20 words. Mm-hmm. And you can cover 98% of how most people experience their lives. And that's how you do it. And that's what I teach. I teach people exactly how to do that. Do you, do you find that you're, you're teaching people more what emotions are and how to define them than you are how to actually talk to each other? I do both. Which do you do more of? Well, when in my teaching, I, in my basic six hour, six to eight hour workshop is the, the first three hours is, all, is almost all didactic. And in that, I talk about the myth of rationality. And then I look at our typical responses to emotions and why they didn't work. And then we get into a definition. Okay, so what are emotions? And I, get, I, have, a, I have my definition here. <laughs> it's long, so I've got to keep it in front of you. So emotions are biologically based patterns of perception, experience, physiology, action, and communication that are culturally created in our brains. And that's, that's what emotions are. We are not born with emotions. This really blows people away. We are not born with emotion. Your little four-year-old baby that you've got does not have emotions yet. She is born with affect. And affect are the physiological responses that she has to her environment. And she has nine if you follow the Sylvan Tompkins model, which I do, nine basic affect, two positive, one negative, six, I mean, two positive, one neutral, six negative. And emotions, imagine those as a palette of colors. Mm-hmm. At about 18 months of age, she's going to have to start learning as she starts to verbalize and start to begin talking. She's going to have to start learning how to take these affective experiences that she has and, and create emotional words that link up to the experiences that she's having. And that's called, that's the beginning, the process of emotional maturity. And as she is able, as she gains more and more experience in, in life experience, assuming she isn't shut down by six years old, mm-hmm. she'll be able to develop this rich database of emotions that will describe with uh, significant granularity exactly how she is feeling. And what the studies show is when she's able to do that, she has very high degrees of emotional intelligence. Whereas people who are not able to do that, most people can only say I'm happy, sad, or pissed off. That's very low granularity and very low emotional intelligence. And simply, it's a matter of learning how to do it. And if you're with gifted parents who can teach a child, coach a child through, through emotional development, they develop this. And if, you know, if, not, if it's not that way in the family, and in many families it's not, then the, the children do not develop emotional intelligence and they suffer as a result. And, th- and this is a key part of emotional intelligence training. I say, if you're going to get emotional intelligence training, which by, by definition is wrong because you can't learn emotional intelligence, you can only learn emotional competency, always ask the teacher or whoever is providing the course for a definition of emotion. That's a remarkable. Uh, you, you've, you've definitely opened my, my perspective on emotion because I've always looked at emotion as, as data, essentially it's it's data that we receive um i've always kind of looked at it from the the perspective of alan watkins uh i don't know if you've he wrote the book coherence um energy and motion 
right? So yep. we, okay. emotions are energy in motion. Um, and I've always liked that. Um, but I really, you know, I, I might have you email me that, uh, that yeah, definition. Cause I want to, I want to ponder that cause I like it. Um, very interesting. Very most, interesting. It is. And the most, and it's not my definition. It comes from neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University. Sure. She's a br brilliant neuroscientist. And her theory, of, her constructed theory of emotions is really amazing. Um, the implicate, there are two big implications, one of which I've already talked about, which is we, do, we are not born with emotions. We have to cre create them. And the second is. That is fascinating. To yes. Me, to be honest. And once you understand that, then everything else starts to make sense. Yeah. The second really important point is emotions define culture. We yeah. have emotions in here in North America that do not exist in Finland. And fin the Finnish people have emotions that do not exist here in the United States. If you go to the Czech Republic, they have exactly. emotions. Can you, can you give me an example? I'm really curious about this now. Yeah, so I don't have the exact words for it, but the Finnish have a word that describes an emotional experience when there are a group of people in the wintertime, a bunch of people are in a, in a, around a fire and they are socializing and, and, they're, and they're close friends. There's an emotional experience that happens. They have a word for that because it's very important to them. We don't have any word like that that would describe that emotional experience. We have had experiences where we're sitting around a fire with friends and we're having fun and maybe bonding, but we don't have a specific word that describes the emotion, shared emotional experience that we're having when we're sitting around a fire, a fireplace in the middle of winter. Yeah. And so emotions are defined by culture and culture defines emotions. If right. you want a definition of culture, it's based on emotion, not based on ethnicity, ethnicity or language or color of skin or religion or any of that stuff. Culture is simply how a group of people create and define their own emotional experience as a group. That is what true culture is. So Feldman Barrett's definition is, is profound in the implications that it has for not only this kind of work, but also in sociology, po political science. I mean, it's we look at emotions as being the underpinning of all culture. Yeah. And how, how a group of people define emotions tells us who they are as a people or as a clan or as a family. Can you can you read the emotion definition again one more yep. time? I just want to I just want to hear it again. Right. Biologically based patterns of perception, experience physiology, action, and communication that are culturally created in our brains. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, I've, I, I come from the sociology background. Um, I, I did a, an un, undergraduate degree, uni, University of Whitewater, and then I went to University of Milwaukee for my, my graduate and never finished um, my last semester because I went to Afghanistan. Um, one of the things that I always struggled with, with sociology as, as, you know, as a, a field, um, was a lack of depth in, uh, truly discussing the, the idea of violence. Um, and I think this really makes some connections for me, uh, in terms of why, because, yes. because when we talked about culture, we didn't talk about it in terms of emotion. And I think I've always looked at culture with some form of understanding that emotion was like 
an underlying or a foundational aspect to it. Um, but I don't think I ever made the connection. I'm, I'm really grateful to, for having you on to do this now um, because I don't think we have a, a good way to have conversations surrounding violence um, without underpinning it with a cultural understanding focused around emotion. And, wow. and I, I, I find that remarkably fascinating right now that I'm putting those two things together. I feel like I should be taking so many notes. I mean, I don't ever listen back to, to episodes, but I think I'm going to be listening back to this one. Um, so I don't forget these ideas because this is, man, this is really interesting. Well, you make a, thank you. Um, and you can understand as a peacemaker, a lawyer turned peacemaker, why this would be so important. Absolutely. In my work and understanding that the roots of violence are all emotional. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And when you look at all the school shootings and, and mass shootings, it's all emotional. Yep. We're dealing with emotionally, really emotionally troubled people, deeply emotionally troubled people. Yep. And, and so the politicians and everybody wants to say that this is evil and, you know, this is horrible. It is horrible. It's not evil because yep. we're simply dealing with a brain, a, a really deeply dysfunctional brain. Speaking of that, you, you said myth of rationality. And I, yep. a long time ago... I had kind of redefined rationality myself and I had always looked at it as to me, rationality is the idea that everything you've ever felt is, is real. It's perceived as real. And so rather than it, you know, you look at it as a myth and I also do in, in, a, in essence, because just because you rationally look at things and everything you see and feel is real, doesn't mean it's good, right, correct, legal, you know, all of the things doesn't mean it's an actual reality that persists between everyone. Right. It's subjective. And so, you know, it's 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 very interesting kind of how how these things are aligning right now and how like you talk well, about the myth of rationality and I've defined I'll tell you how bad it is. I teach a course at Pepperdine University at the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution in the graduate school. Mm -hmm. I teach a course called Decision Making Under Stress and Uncertainty. Oof, interesting. How do we make how do we make decisions under stress and uncertainty? And we and we look at one of the things we look at is what what does it mean to be rational? And it turns out there's no definition of rationality. Yeah. I mean, not no discipline. There's not one di academic discipline out there that adequately defines rationality. Not even economics. The old von Morgenstern, <coughs> Stern, uh, von Neumann Morgenstern uh, approach. Their, five, their four basic rules, axioms of rationality developed in 1948 are, are not true. And they were immediately disproven. As soon as they came out with them, there was a thing they, a, a, they called the LA paradox that showed that their axioms do not work in real life. So today, even economists say at best, we have bounded rationality. We, yeah. we, if we're in very narrow guardrails, we can say there's some rationality, but most of our life is outside those guardrails. I, I feel like people make it synonymous, so synonymous with logic that it that it it becomes lost. Like there's, right. like like rationality and logic. I think there's there's this interconnection between culture, right? Let's let's focus mm -hmm. on the culture. I think people have looked at it as the same thing, even though it's not. Correct. Um, and I I very much like I I I still even through this discussion I still think I'm I'm maintaining my definition in some way because it's operative right you call it the myth of rationality i call it the same thing just in different words where it's real but 
it's not real for everyone. And, and so the, to me, the reality of rationality is it's, it's more like your own truth, but that doesn't mean your truth shouldn't be challenged and shouldn't be, uh, you know, expressed to be misunderstood right. or wrong or, you know, so, whatever. So if you want to look at a broader definition of rationality, it's one way of looking at it is to think of rationality as a way to optimize your decision-making. Yeah. But the optimize for what? That's the big question. Right. And, and good question. most of the time, we, what we're optimizing our decision-making for is very subjective and yeah. emotional. Yeah. But the process that we use to optimize our decision-making can, can be categorized in a set of what we call rational processes, critical thinking, analytical reasoning, quantitative and qualitative analysis, scientific method, deductive, inductive logic. These are all tools that fall within the toolbox of what we could call rational thinking. And we use rational thinking to optimize a decision. At least that's what we hope. But yeah. the truth is that we cannot use any of these tools until we're emotional first. Correct. Because none of these tools will alert us to a problem in the environment that needs to be solved with the toolbox of critical thinking, for example. Right. So we need to have an emotional reaction to our environment. And then hopefully our system, two part of our brain kicks in and we say, oh, I've got a real problem here. I need to, I need to pull out my toolbox of that might be, we could call this rational thinking, put it in the box of rational thinking. I need to pull out my tools and see which one's going to be, help me optimize my decision-making to solve this problem. I, I find this so interesting because I come at it from a very different angle. I, I work with trauma. And so I work with not like what you just said is, is again, if I can, I'm probably going to say fascinating about 70 times in this episode. <laughs> um, you come at it and you say to operate on with anything, with anything in the toolbox, we need an emotion first. Right. And I come at it from the opposite end of the spectrum is the people that I work with have too much emotion. Correct. They do. And, and that's like, and, and, and they can't optimize because, because right. there are um, people with, who have suffered trauma, mm -hmm. especially PTSD, they have a physiological condition where their amygdala, the two little almond shaped things back in their inner brain are, are they're hypo um, enlarged. So they become super, super sensitive to every single input, every single memory, every single thing that triggers an emotional response until they are completely overwhelmed. And they can't think and they can't, they can't, yeah. they can't apply system two thinking because their brain is on constant overload. Right. It's, and they're it's, just buried. They're buried in this stuff. And it's, it's obviously hugely debilitating. Right. It's constantly disconnecting the constantly. neocortex. That's correct. And so the beauty about epic labeling is that if you take one of those people and you start APIC labeling, what you're literally doing is lending your prefrontal cortex to them for the time it takes them, the 90 seconds or so that it takes them to get their prefrontal cortex back online and they regain control and then they immediately calm down. Hmm. Now that doesn't mean it's permanent. You have to do this yeah. over and over and over and over again and then teach them how to APIC label themselves, which yep. means they have to learn how to be able to recognize their own emotional experiences as they arise and then label those emotional experiences yeah. and over a period of time, you know, and that's the work. That's the work. And it's not, it's not always easy and it's certainly not fast, but it it's, is. Effective. And and I think one thing that's, that's 
so understated it's not always something you can do by yourself nope and and that's what i think is so important right now and and what we just said all the things that we just said if there's something that people take from this it's that it's that if you're going through something remarkably traumatizing to a point where you have ptsd or you have cptsd you have something worse uh you may not be able to actually do the work by yourself not in the beginning exactly you need somebody to help you your brain your brain is so over over stimulated by your the emotional neural circuits in your brain are so active that they basically crowd out everything else and so you're a slave to your reactivity that was me that was me for 20 years you're you're total slave to your activity and so what you have to learn how you have to have somebody help you redevelop control through your right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex and the and the in my opinion not being a a therapist or a counselor but as a peacemaker what i've seen in my work is that when you start affect labeling people they do calm down you Mm -hmm. can't help yourself you have to calm down i mean you there's just no there's no if or maybe it happens because that's the way the brain is hardwired. You calm down. Now, maybe you're only going to be calmed down for a minute or two, but at least for that minute, you're calm. And then in that minute, you can exert some conscious control over what's going on. And maybe you re-escalate again, and then you have to be calmed down. And this may have to be reiterated 20, 30 times a day over 10 years. And so you finally start getting control. It's interesting because, I, you know, again, I go back to Alan Watkins. Um, his one of his biggest things was breathing right and so instead of affect labeling um it was was consciously developing a a rhythmic way to manage heart rate does he talk about the polyvagal system no all right so see i mean a lot of these guys are just ignorant about the science so the reason the breathing well this was this was probably 15 years ago when he yeah okay so there's a guy out of not too far from you, out of University of Illinois, Chicago, Stephen Porges, who has spent his life studying the polyvagal system. The vagus nerve is completely independent from the central nervous system. And it basically is a direct connection between the brain centers and all of our viscera, including lungs and diaphragm. One of the few things that we can really control is our breathing. We can consciously control our breathing. Mm-hmm. And the, without getting into all the hard science, basically, the viscera are sending information to the brain. The brain is sending information to the viscera. The viscera are all talking to each other through the polyvagal system. And so when we get stimulated, everybody's in panic mode. The unmyelinated system is active. The myelinated system is suppressed. And now it's fight or flight. And if you learn how to take deep breaths, as so many people have done for so many years, it basically you're consciously telling everybody <laughs> inside you, calm down, everybody. It's all okay. I'm breathing slowly. Mm-hmm problem is it takes too long you can do deep breathing but it's going to take at least 10 or 15 minutes of deep breathing with no other stimulation around you before you will come out of that fight or flight response so yes if you've got the time and you're in a quiet place and the stimulus that caused the problem in the first place has been removed you can calm yourself down but it takes a long time Mm -hmm. And so for the kind of work that I do, where I'm engaged in high conflict, high emotions all the time, telling people to take a deep breath is like. Yeah, it it requires some trust to be built if you're. Well, not only that, but I don't have time for them 
right. to, to go outside and take a deep breath because I'm getting paid a lot of money to help them get, get settled down so they can solve the, the deeper problems underlying their conflict. Sure. But when I affect label them, it causes an almost an instant calming effect. And that's what Lieberman's study shows, why that works the way that it does. So I don't tell people to take deep breaths. I just calm them down. I just label their emotions, wait until I get the involuntary response. And yeah, it's right. Damn right. That's the way I feel. Just like you did a little while ago when we did the demo. Yeah. Um, they will do that automatically. Okay, so now I've calmed them down. They'll be calm for three, four, five minutes until they get escalated again. And then I got to calm them down again. And it's just an iterative process. But there, are, there is no other, I, at least I haven't found, I have not found any other effective process for getting highly emotional people settled so that they can engage in some kind of serious problem solving. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. I, other you than, know. And all the bromides I've read out there, go, take, go out on the balcony, take a deep breath, take a walk. Yeah, all that works, but it's not practical. Not only that, but if you get escalated yourself, you've got to have the presence of mind saying, I, you have to be self, sufficiently self-aware to say, I'm really pissed off and escalated. I got to go do some deep breathing to calm down. Right. Most people well, don't have that control. I, I, come from, you know, <laughs> I, I come from a practice that I'm not dealing with, you know, the, the, the high tension environment of having two people trying to attack each other. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the, the realm of we have time and you know, we're using this as a, a long-term guidance tool to manage heart rate, manage, you know, right. system itself. You have another person that's also kind of giving you that effect labeling as right. well as, you know, it's a, so it's a tool on top of a tool. There you go. So what I think I would do if I were in a counseling situation is I would affect label. Mm -hmm. I get some, somebody would get escalated about something, affect label until they calm down. Then I would say, all right, take a minute, close your eyes and just breathe. And then maybe I'd have them do a visualization, yep. like a waterfall in a pond, something very calming. And, and, and then, all right, now, now, what are you experiencing now? And then have them start to label what their experiences are. And when you were escalated, what were the emotions that you were experiencing them? And begin to teach them emotional self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's always going to be one of the hardest things to teach anyone. The beauty about affect labeling is that if once you, I mean, imagine working in a maximum security prison mm -hmm. with murderers. I mean, this is what I've done for the last 12 years. Um, no, no, <laughs> no emotional intelligence, right? No emotional self-awareness. Yeah. What we've learned is that when we teach them how to affect label, they develop emotional self-awareness very, very quickly. In fact, it takes about five to six weeks and they completely change as human beings. Because as you learn how to structure emotions and read other people's emotions and reflect them back, you are now building up your own emotional database and you're building your own emotional self-awareness and your own emotional self-regulation. And it all happens automatically. You repro Every time you affect label somebody, you're reprogramming your brain in a positive way. And it doesn't take years. It takes literally weeks. For, their, for you to start seeing profound shifts in your side yourself. And that's why this stuff's so powerful. Yeah. It's very interesting. Like when you, when you say you've worked with murderers for the past 12, 12 years, yeah. what are there people that, that can't do it? And, and describe like what, what is it like to work with those people? I'm very curious. We haven't, 
I haven't run across anyone that couldn't do this. I've run across people who didn't want to do it. Sure. But I have never run across somebody who wanted to learn and couldn't. And I'm talking about men and women, murderers, serving life sentences without possibility of parole in the deepest, darkest prisons in California. Mm -hmm. Pretty dark places. Anyone, I, I'm convinced just about anyone can learn these skills and benefit from them. Like I said before, the only personality type that I don't think this will work with is the overt maladapted narcissist. And we had one student out of the 20,000 that I've worked with over the last 13 years who had that personality disorder. And we, he's the only, he's the only student we've ever kicked out. Interesting. One, just one. Yeah. And we finally, we worked and worked and worked and worked and we could not get him to come around. And we finally said, this class is not for you. You're excused. But that was after working with him for two years. Yeah. Hey, you can't say you didn't give didn't give him a shot, right? Oh man, yeah, and, and that's the only one. Everyone else, everyone else has succeeded. We have we have over six thousand of our students that have been released on parole in California. Not one person has reoffended. Not one of my students has reoffended. So what you know? What does this process look like for people that that? step into the affect labeling, right? You're teaching them and let's focus it on prison specific. Um, you know, if an, if an offender, you come to an offender and you, you start having this conversation, what is logistically, what does it involve? Like how many visits, you know, how many weeks? Oh, oh, the curriculum. Sure. Well, the original curriculum that Laurel and I devised was a 12 week curriculum from start to finish. And we about killed ourselves. <laughs> doing it that way but we did that way we did it for six years that way in, at first in the women's prison and then that prison was repurposed to a men's prison we came back and trained the men and we didn't know whether there would be a difference between the women and the men and essentially they were the same i mean we they all responded amazing amazingly to this to this teaching um the first thing that we teach them the very first day is how to do this listing. We call four, we call it four levels of reflective listing, mirroring, paraphrasing, core messaging, and affect labeling. And we're talking today, we're talking about the fourth level, the deepest level of affect labeling. And what we teach is the three-step process. First of all, ignore the words. If you're dealing with any kind of emotional person, it doesn't matter what the emotion is, the first thing you learn to do is to ignore what they're saying. It becomes white noise. It has no meaning for you. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, two things happen. One, you're not likely to get triggered yourself. And two, you free up bandwidth because you're not processing what they're saying. You free up the bandwidth to do the next two steps. The second thing we teach is what we've already talked about, how to read the emotions, how to read the, well, I call them emotional data fields. We all have emotional data fields. We're constantly filling data fields around us with, with emotional data. And it turns out that our, through evolution, our brains are exquisitely hardwired to accurately, efficiently, and quickly ascertain the emotional experience of another person. We can do this. It's very easy. You, the reason that we don't have this, we don't develop the skills for the reasons that I've talked about. We have this sure. myth of rationality that puts down this idea of reading other people's emotions. And so we ignore this latent ability that we have. So we wake up that ability. We teach people how to do that. Right. And then the third step is as you are, as the, your consciousness is becoming aware of the emotional experiences of people, you, Find the layer, one of the layers, and you simply repeat back the emotional experience. You are 
angry. You are disrespected. You are uh, worried or anxious. You are afraid or you're anxious. You are embarrassed or shamed. You're sad, depressed, distressed. You are abandoned, unloved, unworthy, betrayed. And so, you, like I said, with the 20 different words describing these different emotions that people have, we cover the gamut of the emotional experience, the human emotional experience, mm -hmm. and it works and extremely powerful. So all they have to do is get the layers figured out, understand the four or five words that we use in each layer. And, you know, they have it in front of them as a cheat sheet in the beginning until finally and they memorize, uh, they learn it. They don't even memorize it. They just learn it. It becomes so, so easy after a couple of hours of practice. Mm -hmm. And then they've got it. And now they start practicing it. And so whenever they're confronting somebody who's upset or emotional, which is all the time in prison, they start just affect living with people. Everybody simmers down. Problems, problems, problems can get solved once they simmer down. That's quite a, very interesting. Do you, uh, I, I'm curious, like what is, what is one of your favorite kind of either success stories or stories that involve all of this? Like what, what's one of your favorite kind of stories I'll tell you the, that for the first story? Sure. Well, the first is always the most memorable, right? Yeah. So Laurel and I, we're in our fifth week of training at Valley State Prison for Women in 2010. And we came into, the, into this dingy conference room on D Yard where we were training. And this, believe me, this is not corporate training at, at a Marriott, Hyatt Regency or Marriott, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's about the worst teaching environment you can possibly imagine. And we're both law professors and used to doing corporate trainings in the high-end places. And this is so far from that. It's unimaginable for most people. Yeah. But we go into this conference room and one of our students, Sarah, is sitting over in the corner. And we get there early, and she was there even earlier. And she's sort of very quietly sobbing in the corner. And we see this. And Laurel, very concerned. goes. We go up to her, and kneel, Laurel kneels next to her and says, Sarah, what's going on? And we never ask our students for their stories, uh, ever. Um, and But Sarah told us her story. She said, I'm in prison. I'm serving a 20 to 30, I'm serving a 25 to life sentence because as a drunk driver, I killed a family of four in an automobile accident. And I came away without a scratch. And when I went to prison, I had to give up my three-year-old boy to my sister to raise. And I've written him a letter every single week for 18 years. I've never heard from him. He's never come to visit. I never communicated with me, not a phone call, nothing. The only way that I even know what is going on in my son's life is by what my sister tells me in our weekly calls and letters. So earlier this week, or late last week, after our last lesson, I decided to write a letter along the lines of what you've been teaching me. And instead of writing about myself and what's going on in my life, I decided to write a letter imagining all the emotions that he must have felt over the last 21 years around a mother who's completely abandoned him and is now serving a life sentence in prison. And what that must be like for a young man. Wow. So I wrote this long letter, all I, and I just used you statements like you taught, taught us, and I thought about each of the stages of life. He's a young man now that he's gone through without mom being there for birthdays and soccer games and graduations and all this stuff. And I went just thought about it all. And, I, and it was a really long letter. And I sent it to him. And today, for the first time in, 20, in 18 years, I received a letter back from him. And the letter was really angry, which really he had a right to be. 
But at the end of the letter, he said, I love you, mom. P.S. I'm bringing my girlfriend. I will come visit you in three weeks. And she started crying again, sobbing. Wow. And I, my jaw dropped. I said, oh, my God. We have something who's, that was the first time I realized. It. <laughs> You're like, it fucking worked. <laughs> it fucking <laughs> well, I knew worked. <laughs> it worked, but I mean, I got that, but I didn't realize. I, it, that was the moment that I realized how profound yeah. this work is on other human beings and how it's really changing their lives. Yeah. That was the first time it really hit me at a deep level that You're, what we're teaching here is really, really deep. You're essentially te teaching people empathy. Yes, a, exactly on a, right. On, on a level that, you know, many people just don't know how to That's operate. It. Called, and, and, and you're exactly correct. And there are two kinds of empathy, cognitive empathy and affective empathy. We're teaching cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. And as we tell our students, whether they're inmates or the senior analysts, the congressional budget office, where I've gone to train senior analysts how to deescalate members of Congress and staff, affective empathy develops as you develop your cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy is reading the emotional data field and reflecting back the emotional experience with the you statement. When you develop affective empathy, you literally feel what the other person is feeling. And then whatever experience you're having, you reflect that back as their experience. Yeah. And so an affective empathy is much more powerful than cognitive empathy. And you develop affective empathy by practicing cognitive empathy. Yeah. And empathy is a skill that must be learned. It's like riding a bicycle. Mm -hmm. You cannot teach yourself empathy. You do not have empathy as a human being. It has to be taught to you. We have a capacity for it. Mm -hmm. Just like we have a capacity to ride a bike. Right. But it's got to be taught and learned and mastered just like everything else. And, and, you know, people get empathy and compassion and sympathy all mixed up. And, you know, our society is a mess around all this stuff because right. nobody really understands that all the differences and the beauty of neuroscience is that it's opening up our knowledge. So we yeah. now can understand I, all of this stuff. I honestly had no idea what empathy was when I was in college. I like it, I was 20, I think 23 years old when I first recognized what it actually like. I actually looked up the word and I was like, wow, that's me, really interesting. Yeah. Let me give you a definition of empathy. Again, I'm all about definition. Precision. Empathy is the ability to assimilate, interpret, process, understand, and reflect back the emotional experience of another person with a you statement. That's empathy. My operative definition, right? And keep in mind, this is an operative def definition, right. something very simple and useful, listening to understand. Right. Listening to emotions to understand. Right. Well, it's I, like, I, it, again, it's operative. So like listening to me is, is also an, obs an observation. Right. But I'm not going to sit here and go listening and observing to understand. I just want to make it really quick and and, and simple. Right. Um, but yes. I would take a little bit of issue with that is that we listen to understand, but our conditioning is to listen to words. And that's not empathy. True. We have it's to. A, it's to an operative definition. So right. it, like like when, when you say all of what you said, mm -hmm. that's how I operate with it. Um. It's, it's, I'm not, I'm, I'm digging far deeper than words. I'm looking at how right. you are expressing them, right? You know, going back to the, the Mayrabian kind of. Right, exactly. Discussion. Nine, three, and seven, right. You mm -hmm. know, the, the, the numbers, you know, can be, can be questioned, but at the same time, the body language is important. The tone is important. All exactly. of I, everything I, else, I, but the I, words, you know, I, even I, the words, 
Like the, the interesting thing is I think the words, not necessarily what words, but repetition of certain words can, can deliver is almost like a body language. Well, there, there's a certain amount there, but I really do believe, and this goes back to evolutionary biology, that our facial expression constitutes 55% of the information we're communicating. And another 37% is our tonality, timbre, pacing, mm -hmm. not the words themselves. The words really don't create a lot. And this goes all the way back to how our brains evolved language. We've only, as human, as hominids, we've only had language for 230,000 years. Mm -hmm. And yet our line has been on the planet for millions of years. Well, how did they communicate if they didn't have vocabulary? Yeah. They communicated through emotion. So how did our brains evolve? Our brains evolved to become highly sensitive to the emotional experiences and expressions of other people. And, the, and it's necessary. Essentially, it was essential to forming clans and families and life and yeah. being able to survive in a really adverse environment with food scarcity and adverse weather and lots of predators. Yeah. And so the ability to come together as a clan, as a family and communicate to effectively yep. was critical to our survival. And it would, but before the invention of fire and the rapid expansion of our brain case that accompanied that, or was after that, due to our ability to assimilate animal fat as a, in our diets, um, it was all about emotional expression. Right. And it still is, you know. And like, we, still have, we still have that ability, it has not gone away. Yeah, and, and I think, I think we have like a real, a real opportunity here with, um, with things like social media to empower that? Do we use it the right way? Obviously that can be up for debate. Um, I think there are people like myself and I don't know if you're on social media, but I am. Um, I, I tried to utilize it to help teach people exactly what we're talking about here. Obviously mm -hmm. this is on, this is gonna be on YouTube. It's gonna be on all sorts of podcasting websites. Um, but like, these these are the kinds of conversations that children don't get and that's that's something that is highly suspect for, to me um you know why are we not really looking into um this stuff as curriculum rather than stem right i'm not saying that stem is not that no no you're absolutely right not important but What's more important, I think creating functional, emotional human beings that have the capacity to communicate with each other is far more important because if you foundationally build that into a child, he can go do whatever he wants with STEM or she right, that's uh, right. and, and reading, writing, it doesn't matter. Like, but the ability to have a conversation, it just, it baffles me that we don't have that as a foundational structure in this is the this is the the why the myth of rationality is so horrible. Yeah, because we have an educational system that's based on this myth that we're rational beings, and so educators feel compelled to look at children as rational beings, not emotional beings. And as a result, they end up only training. There we have two systems. We have many systems in our brain, but for the what we're talking about here, we have our default mode or social system, and we have our task focus system. Education only trains the task focus system with all of our critical thinking skills and analytical reasoning and probability and statistics and the quantitative, qualitative analysis, all that stuff is all, that's all the STEM stuff. Only trains one, one set of circuits in our brain. We completely ignore the social circuits, which you're talking about, which is empathy and listening and, 
and emotional control and emotional intelligence and all, all of these things that are far more important to a functioning human being yeah. than learning how to solve an algebraic problem that our educational system ignores because the myth of rationality says that emotions are bad and we should beat emotions out of our children. Right. And that, that is the fundamental explanation for 98% of all the problems we have in our culture today. I would, I would agree. It is. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. How I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, I'm not sure how much you are on social media and, and the, you know, figureheads that you pay attention to, but people like, like Jordan Peterson, uh, and I'm, do you, do you pay attention to any of any of those people? Most, you know, something I'll be honest and you know, I'm politically incorrect. I think most of it's all bullshit. I think a lot of these people out there that have built really big social media audiences are not well-educated. They've not studied the science. Um, well, Jordan, they, Jordan Peterson is an, is an academic from Canada that uh, is basically a psychologist, I think. Yeah, and I don't have much to do with psychologists. Sure. Uh, and the reason is that the, a lot of, and, my, and I'll just say this honestly, my niece just got her doctorate in psychology from a very prestigious graduate school in Southern California. And I started asking her about the kind of stuff that she learned. Mm -hmm. And some of it was really good, but a lot of it was based on stuff, knowledge that's outdated by over 50 or 60 years. Right. Psychologists are unwilling to look at the neuro, not, not all of course, but many psychologists and especially many professors of psychology are unwilling to look at neuroscience yeah. and understand how neuroscience really tells us what's going on in the human brain. Well, that's, I don't think that's a, that's just a psychology thing. I, I had the same issue with sociology, yeah, right? See, we, we wouldn't, we couldn't talk about evolutionary well, psychology or psychology. That's right. Because in academic disciplines, again, very narrow guardrails, don't dare go outside your academic discipline. But the problem is that when you don't do that, you're not looking at the foundational cause and effect that neuroscience talks about. Yeah. And so psychology is supposed to be about the processing of the human brain. And of course, there are different kinds of psychology, but fundamentally, what is going on up here and what's going on in our bodies at the same time? Yeah. And neuroscience is telling us what's going on. And the psychologists, many psychologists just ignore that. Yeah. And they teach what they learned, which was outdated, unscientific musings of very smart people like Freud, who was totally wrong. There's, you know, there's not one scientific study to support anything that Freud taught or thought about or wrote about. Not one. His database were 18 upper middle class Viennese women, not men, women, white women in Vienna, Vienna wealthy women. Yep. That was his data set. And upon that, he built this huge edifice that still controls much thinking today. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yep. So no. So people like that. If you got hard science. I'll listen to you. If you don't have hard science, I'm not interested. Well, I, I wouldn't say Jordan Peterson's not a, he's a guy that looks at hard science and I, I don't necessarily look at him as the epitaph for I understand. psychology. He's, and he may be a great guy and very smart. I'm just saying that a lot, there's a lot out there that's wrong. He approaches, uh, one, he's, he's more political and, and, and I think that's not something that he intended um, but he approaches the conversation that uh, the the education system and you know the furthering education system, so universities are actually quite uh, very much the problem because they they do this echo chamber like right. you know 
discussion mm-hmm. on on certain topics. Um, and he talks about you know some of these some of these subjects. And so I was curious if you had had ever heard of him or or, or looked into. I've heard him. of him. I have not followed him. I would probably speak out of ignorance. I might really like the guy. Um, it sounds like he's got some of the ideas he's got. I'm, I would totally resonate with that our educational system is screwed up, that it starts at the university, which is a mm-hmm. institution that was basically has not changed much since the 17th century right. in terms of its fun, foundational structure. Yeah. And as a, a, a colleague of mine explained, the endowment system they have and the way they develop the universities was developed in the 1920s to exclude Jews and Blacks from in prestigious universities. Yeah. So our whole development system is all based on white supremacy. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. And if Peterson is talking about that kind of stuff, yeah, I would I would agree with all that. But, but to your point, yeah. frankly, I do not spend time on social media listening to other people. I don't own a television set. I don't listen to the radio. I curate my information very carefully. It's balanced. I'm a very intelligent guy, and I'm obviously a, uh, a didact. I can, I'm a self-learner. Mm-hmm. I have multiple graduate degrees. But, um, but no, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time listening because I, don't, I have not seen a lot of people that add value. Very few people that I've seen on social media add value. Yeah. Most of them take away value. I agree. It's my time. Yeah. I, I have spent a lot of time on social media. I've built a, I've built a following of, of nearly 600,000 followers at this point on, uh, on TikTok. And uh, wow, for you. I would also agree with you. I, I use it for uh, the business aspect of, sure. of so collecting, collecting people to work with. Right. Um, and that's and exactly so, how I use it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But, but you won't find me out there spending my spare time saying what's going on on TikTok, Facebook, or Instagram, or sure. YouTube. But I do have YouTube channels, and I've got a YouTube channel with 80,000 subscribers. Yeah. Um, and But do I go out and interact with people? I will respond to comments, but yeah. I'm not going to spend... Well, I, I think that's a... YouTube videos. If, if, there's, if there's one way to approach social media, I think that's actually a really beneficial and healthy way to do it. Um, I think the consumption of social media dependent on how you consume. Um, and like you said, I think it's very important to learn how to sacrifice certain things, right? You should sacrifice entertainment for the benefit of things like learning and development right. and growth. So if you're following account like yours, Doug, um, where it's adding value to you, you're, you're taking away something from it that's actually providing direction and guidance, I think it's beneficial. I can but if it's keeping you glued to this device that is taking away your time, taking away your energy, taking away, you know, from your life, essentially you're making a decision that is, you know, obviously not good for you. I agree. Um, you know, agree. And so, you know, like all, it, I, it, as all things, there is both good and bad in all, right. in all of it. There's both right and wrong in all of it. Um, you know, it, it's, it is what it is. I, I spend a lot of time on social media because I'm, actively trying to understand more about culture through it um and so there's there's a it's a dangerous game i play though because in doing so i find i fall into that trap as well so i I have to be careful there's times where i'm like you know what i'm not touching it for a couple weeks Uh, (laughs) because that's i you know in in i'm researching right now for a book that i i plan to write in the future um and so I find that my research slowly kind of drifts into a realm that I'm not fully comfortable with anymore. Uh, so I have to, you know, hype, you know, 
consistently kind of purge some 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 things going on uh, in my life. But I, I I find this conversation remarkably interesting uh, with you, Doug, and I I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, you've definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things. I, I think I'm going to probably go back and watch this one again for sure, um, which I, I rarely do. Um, and, and probably learn a few more things that I, I think I missed throughout this. Uh, but I want to give you a chance to, is there anything else that you've got coming up that, that is, is something that people should be looking forward to, um, or, you know, something that they can find you doing? I would say that if, if, if what we've talked about today resonates with you and you're interested in learning more, <clears throat> I've created a webpage for the audience that is listening here, Dylan, called dugnoll.co slash Dylan, D-Y-L-A-N. So it's dugnoll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.co slash Dylan. And on that page, you can get a free ebook that describes how I just dis- ethic labeling and the science and how I discovered it and how to do it. Um, you can get a copy of my fourth book, Deescalate. You can buy, uh, for, le- for less than $200, you can buy uh, my online video course, de-escalate how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less, which will in a video course teach you how to do it. And it ends with a, um, a practice exercise where I'm screaming at you. And if you can go through the, de- the ethic labeling process and not get upset while I'm yelling at you, then you know you've, you've got it. And then the, the, the last offering is my more advanced developing emotional competency course and advanced emotional competency course. So those are all on the on the web page, on that page. And then from there, you can go off and explore the rest of my website. And I have a lot of blogs, um, you know, access to YouTube videos through on my blogs and stuff like that. And, and so there's just a lot of information to your point. I'm trying to improve the world by putting out valuable content that's based on science, okay. not based on pop psychology or just ideas that have. If I, if I don't have the science to support what I talk about, I don't talk about it. Sure. And so, so I'm hoping yeah, it, it should be a great place for resources. Absolutely. Um, and that, that will be linked below uh, for anybody that's, that's following this right now. But before you go, Doug, um, I got to ask you one question. I ask everybody so you can, you can give me your answer and you can give everyone your answer. And I'm sure people will take away from it some, some great benefit. If there was one message you could leave the world, Doug, what would that be? I would like, you, you who are watching this or listening to this, and you, Dylan, too, to learn how to listen another person into existence. You do that through ethic labeling. Because every time you listen another person into existence, you deeply validate them as a human being. And for many people, this is the first time they have ever felt acknowledged and validated as a true human being. And it may be the first time they have ever felt emotionally safe in the presence of a human being. When you listen another person into existence, it costs you nothing. It's a free gift you can give to anybody. And every time you listen another person into existence, you're throwing a pebble into the pond of peace. And those ripples are spreading out infinitely affecting other people in ways that you can't even understand, just as Sarah demonstrated in her story to Laurel and I that fateful day in June of 2010 in the most violent women's prison in the world. And so I challenge you to be peacemakers, not by doing big stuff, 
but by doing little stuff. Every single person you come across, you can listen them into existence, validate them. They will be grateful. You will be reprogramming your brain in a powerful way. And more importantly, you will be contributing person by person to a more peaceful world. I love it, Doug. I appreciate it. I thank you for uh, for coming on the podcast and sharing all your wisdom. It's fascinating, as, as I've said before. <laughs> and for all of those that are listening, make sure you go connect with Doug. Go check out his website. Link is below. And I just want to thank you for joining us on this week's episode of The Dylan Experience. You're welcome. Great conversation. Absolutely.